It's good to see everyone. I hope everybody has had safe travels during ski week. And for those who um, are ill and not able to be with us, we miss you dearly, but we're thankful that we can be connected by our live stream. And AV team, thank you for caring for us in the midst of, I know, a lot of changes with the equipment. Well, this morning we are back, obviously, in the Sermon on the Mount, but our Lord and Savior brings us really to a new section in chapter 6. This new section in the Sermon on the Mount is moving us. We've been in a place where we've been focusing on worship, and the Lord is now going to take us into the area of stewardship. How do we care and manage what the Lord has graciously given us as his disciples and as citizens of his kingdom. And you'll recall the Sermon on the Mount has been described as Jesus or the Christ manifesto of kingdom living in a fallen world. How do we live as citizens of heaven? How do we live as children of God beginning now? step by step, in a world that resists and rejects the lordship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is where it starts. This is not where it's going to end, but this is certainly where it starts, and this is the beginning of the journey. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making this declaration and setting the record straight for his expectations, uncompromising, that begin here and now by his grace and by his provision. So you'll recall in Matthew 5, Jesus begins with the blessings and the heart and the attitudes of a child of God. That's where he begins with what is known as the Beatitudes. And then he proclaims the new righteousness of his kingdom, his kingdom's standard of right and wrong. It's different from the world. His kingdom's standard of righteousness is what is right before his heavenly father, what his heavenly father views as right, not what the world deems is right. And this is the righteousness that is to prevail over our hearts, our relationships, our worship, every aspect of our lives. And then as we come to Matthew six nineteen, which will be the beginning of our text for this morning, he moves to this new area of stewardship, the stewardship of his kingdom, the stewardship that he requires of every disciple, every follower of Jesus, everyone who takes his name. Now, in Greek, the word for stewardship is oikonomia. And if it sounds familiar, it is familiar because that is where we get our word economy. Economy. Now, in a world that has tried and failed to remove God from every aspect of our society, including our money, the idea of economy is a reference in our day and age to how we handle wealth, how we manage wealth and property. What are the values? What are the priorities that dictate how we handle a nation's wealth and property, a household's wealth and property, a family's wealth and property, a marriage's wealth and property? 
How do we manage this? What are the priorities and what are the values? How do we invest? But in Greek, the word refers to the oversight or management of an entire household. And this management and oversight includes all of the family members. It includes all of the servants. It includes all of the business of that household, all the activities of that household, all the wealth of that household, every aspect of that household's life, from the breakfast to the bank, everything from the moment you wake up till you go to bed. How do we manage that? How are we stewards of that? Now, sadly, we see that we're a long way from that global holistic concept. And even as we think about stewardship, as it's frequently discussed in religious circles or in churches, frequently it's reduced to the money and the cash that you put in the offering plate. It's been reduced to that. And that is the fruit of our compartmentalized modern life. We live these lives that are broken up into bits and pieces, and we try and keep everything in order. And typically, from Monday to Saturday, we live by the world's economy. How much money do I have to put aside for my kids' college fees? How much money do I have to put aside to pay the rent? How much money do I need for gas or for my car lease payments? And then we come to a little interruption. Praise God for those interruptions on Sunday, where hopefully the church functions on a different economy. But there's this clash between these two different economies with two different priorities, two different values, and two different currency systems. And they clash. And we see that play out in our lives, where there is fear and guilt and obligation that typically works for what I'm obligated to do to take care of my family, and here's what I'm obligated to do in church, and how do we figure out the balance between the two? Work-life balance, economy balance. And as life progresses, and as we grow in the local church, it becomes harder and harder and harder, and that's by God's design. Because he's bringing into conflict these two very, very different economies that we're trying to live by. And we see very much that's what is driving our Monday to Saturday economy frequently is what is referred to as materialism or consumerism because this is what frames our places of work and the world in which we live in. We have to ask ourselves who ultimately is the king and ruler of the economies that we serve. Well, the good news of God's word is that Christ has come to save us from this corrupted and self-serving economy in which we live and we exist in. And hopefully as we walk through our Savior's words this morning, you're going to see that. And that is not to come and condemn people for the lives that they live. Christ has come to set us free 
so that we are free indeed to live and serve what is right before God rather than living these conflicted lives in which we find ourselves in. How does Christ save us? He does so by giving us a new king. He gives us a new kingdom. And he gives us a new economy. And it's the economy of his heavenly father. It's an economy of righteousness that is built and fueled by God's grace and his love for his children, where everything that we need, he has already planned for and provided for us in Christ. And it's for that very reason that he calls us to live for his king, to live for his kingdom, and to live by his economy. And that's our big truth for this morning. God's beloved children are to be faithful stewards of his kingdom. God's children are to be faithful stewards of his kingdom. This means Christ is calling his disciples to faithfully manage the household he has given them. And he's called them to manage this household, which covers every aspect of a believer's life, our families, our education, our work, all of it. He's called us to manage it his way, not the world's way, not our neighbor's way, not even the way we used to or the way we were raised. He's come so that we would care for his treasure that he has given us his way. And his way, brothers and sisters, is the way of the cross. And that's why our theme for the next few weeks leading up to Easter is the stewardship of the cross. And I want to take a little bit of time to listen very carefully to what Jesus has to say, because if we're honest with ourselves, as Kevin alluded to this morning, we are more the product of our culture than we care to admit. If John Piper can say that, that he's more influenced by his culture and his time than he cares to admit or than we're aware of, then even more so. We are more the product of a consumer and materialistic culture, especially as wealthy Americans, because we are wealthy Americans when we look at globally the world's status and everybody in the world. And the things that we're concerned about and that we worry about or that give us anxiety as we think about those things, many of those things have to do with finance, money, education, career, and the worldly treasures that are highly esteemed in this world, but that are of little value when it comes to standing before our maker and being accountable to him. So church family, this is where we are going to be for the next few weeks. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 6, and we will read from verses 19 to close to 25, 26. This is Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body 
will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is the mighty word of the Lord. And these are the values of his kingdom and what his heavenly Father highly esteems. And what the world despises and rejects and believes is folly. When I first immigrated to the United States from Canada, one of my first priorities, apart from finding a church, was to open a U.S. bank account. Why? It's because I was living in America. I had no plan on going back. And quite frankly, running and operating Canadian bank accounts with Canadian dollars was almost useless and worthless. And as time went on, it became increasingly inconvenient of having to manage something that was really of deteriorating use and value in my life. And so eventually, I basically just shut it down and got rid of it. As Julie will share with you, we did the same thing with all my medical licenses as we made the transition here to ministry. Things that were of value in one area, but as time goes on and you move into another economy, become a liability or a problem and are completely useless or of no value. Stewardship, brothers and sisters, is about how we prioritize and how we manage what is of value and what is important. And that, of course, begs the question, what is valuable to you and what is important to you? Because that will dictate where you spend your money, where you spend your time, where you spend your thoughts, and as Jesus points out, what makes you anxious or worried. And so we're stopping and saying, okay, this past week, where have I been anxious? Where have I been worried? Typically, that is a trigger to say, this is typically where my heart is and where my treasure is. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus is showing his disciples they need to change the way they think, they need to change what they value, and they need to change what they're investing in. Because they are now part of a new kingdom, and they are now part of a new economy, and they are now accountable to a new king. And this king has come to set them free from the burdens and the snares and the traps and the anxieties of this world. 
For what reason? So they can belong and live and serve him. That is the reason he has come. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Christ is Lord of all. Christ is Lord of all. I don't believe I will ever tire of saying that. How often do we forget that, brothers and sisters? Where does the Lord's Lordship stop? Does it stop with the me time? Does it stop during my work time from nine till five? Does it stop during my recreational time? Now let's consider in the light of what is valuable and what is important. How do you measure who or what is worth your time? How do you measure who or what is worth your effort? Yes, I'll take an appointment with this person. Yes, I'll have lunch with this person. How do you measure who or what is worth your investment? How do you measure who or what is of value? Now think about your place of work. Who is it in your place of work that determines what you're worth? What your time is worth? What your effort is worth? Who is it in your place of work that sets the agenda of how much time or how many projects or what projects you will be accountable to? Now switch that to your marriage. Switch that to your home. Who in your home and who in your marriage holds you accountable and sets the agenda from what's worth your time and what's a waste of your time? When Jesus says in verse 19 to his disciples, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, he's not only giving a non-optional command, not an option, Jesus is speaking for God. And he's assigning an eternal value to everything in the world. In God's eyes, in God's economy, this is what is of value and this is what is of less value. And in this economy, it includes the value that he is assigning to the disciples and what they devote their lives to. And in fact, this is his remedy for anxiety as he comes to the end. He's drawing a direct connection between what we invest in and what we're anxious about. And at the end, his remedy, as he points to them, he says, don't you know of what value you are to your heavenly father? But brothers and sisters, if the only people we're worried about is our neighbors or the people who are in our classes or our extended family members and the houses they buy and the cars they have. Doesn't matter what God thinks, right? But Jesus is writing that and he's remedying that and he's showing them that what really matters is what God thinks and how he values you. Now, who is Jesus to make such a judgment of your life and mine? Who are you to judge, Jesus? 
Well, as the disciples continue to follow Jesus and they witness his crucifixion and his resurrection, they begin to see by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the testimony of God's word, Jesus of Nazareth is not just the Messiah. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Lord of all. And he is the reason and the purpose for all of creation. Everything in this world, it's held together by the word of our Savior. It finds its meaning in him. And without him, it's all absolutely rubbish. Colossians 1.16b, all things were created through him and for who? Him. Your purpose in life, you were created for Christ. This world, this church, this building, the oil in Saudi Arabia was all created for one purpose. It's created for Christ, Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, that's God, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of what? All things. Everything God created to be a gift for his beloved son. Maybe we might even be able to say a wedding gift for his beloved son. But everything in the universe was created to be given as an inheritance and a gift from a beloved father to a beloved son. You take Jesus out of that picture and it is all rubbish. You take the sun out of the solar system. What do you have left? And when we begin to see this, brothers and sisters, and the disciples didn't see it in the beginning. They think, Messiah, come, throw out the Romans, bring back God's kingdom to Jerusalem, put the Jews back on top. But as time goes on, and you see and you walk through the New Testament, they start to realize, whoa, this is how big our Savior was. They begin to see that everything finds its meaning in Christ. And as Paul points out in Ephesians 5, and as he begins to point out the purpose and meaning of marriage, And the purpose and meaning of family. And how we're supposed to function at work. And he points out in Ephesians 4 and 5 how the measure of all things and the direction we're going, what's the measure of all things? The metron. The metric. It's not money, brothers and sisters. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to see what's valuable to God, you look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. And you begin to see what God highly esteems. And interestingly enough, it's the opposite of what this world esteems. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 where the Corinthian church, new believers, they're all enamored with the things of the world. The rhetoric of the world, the wisdom of the world, 
the whistles and bells of the world. We've got it all in our church. And he's saying, you're failing to see that the power of the gospel is the power of the cross. And God has brought the power of the cross. This is exactly as J.C. Shepherd had asked last Wednesday night, so that no one would boast and to show the foolishness of this corrupt world. And we see what the Lord is doing in and through all of these things. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came into our fallen world to redeem and to restore and to renew what rightfully belongs to him. How? By way of the cross beginning one soul and one disciple at a time. This is his merciful kingdom plan to provide salvation and deliverance before the final judgment comes and God destroys all that is resisted and rebelled against him and brings a new heaven and a new earth. This is his mercy and his grace. A friend of my brother's, he used to restore old books. And he used to find famous books that were tore up, beaten up, and getting ready to be thrown away. And he would find them at flea markets and he would find them at garage sales, things that had been sitting in someone's attic forever. What was of no value to most except a discerning eye. And then he would take these books that he would buy for little to nothing. And he would lovingly take the time to restore them, to put their bindings back together, to give new leather bindings, to go through the pages and to restore them. And then he would on occasion give these away as gifts. In fact, he gave me a graduation present for graduating from seminary. I don't think he knew the details, so he gave me, you know, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, stellar in the Catholic Church, but it was still a sweet gift. This big, huge tome, right? Wrapped in this plastic bag with this refurbished and restored leather binding. And brothers and sisters, this is a really broken illustration of what Jesus does when he saves us and he brings us into his kingdom. He has come to what the world has discarded and deemed as worthless. And he has redeemed and purchased it with his blood. But then he is not done. He lovingly restores and puts it back together the way it was intended to be. So that it in turn, your life and mine, can be used as a gift that brings glory to our Father in heaven and is a demonstration of his love and his grace and his care for his creation. That is the stewardship and the gift and the mission of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And here in Matthew 6, what Jesus begins to restore, he begins to work on the hearts of the disciples to begin to restore the values and priorities of their heart. And he begins to restore the values and priorities that esteem the righteousness of God 
rather than the corrupted and transient things of this fallen world. This brings us to our second point for this morning. Christ commands heavenly priorities and heavenly values. Christ commands heavenly priorities and heavenly values. You know, it's no, it's an obvious thing, right? We live in not just a fallen world, we live in a fallen world, a failing world, a world that is failing and falling apart. And increasingly, the measure of all things is what? It's money. Fair statement, money is the metric of our influence. Money is the metric of our value. Money is the metric of our security in the marketplace, be it in politics or religion. And how often is the care that we give and receive dependent on an individual's earning potential or sales potential? Well, we see this, brothers and sisters, in Christian media and Christian celebrity. Men were going to the Shepherds Conference soon, right? What's the draw? And sadly, this is an economy that frequently neglects or exploits the least among us, the very people who the Lord esteems. Children, widows, immigrants, seniors, special needs, their earning potential is low. Their sales potential, only if you're selling funeral plots, right? And headstones. Where's the money? Where's the influence? And where is the glamour in those things? These are the twisted earthly values and priorities that all men have struggled with from the beginning when Adam and Eve chose to value the creation over the creator. This is what some people call materialism. Charles Quarles defines materialism as treasuring earthly things more than God himself. Treasuring earthly things more than God himself. And this includes all the things that we place our trust and confidence and hope in instead of God. It can be our careers. It can be our work. It can be our education. Scripture calls this idolatry and covetousness and folly. Idolatry, covetousness, and folly. Romans 1.18, when we worship the creature or the created things, when we place our trust and hope in the created things, rather than placing our hope in the one who has given these things to us, And what ends up happening is we reverse the order of God's creation. God created the world where the material world would serve the spiritual. Do you need food? Yes, of course you need food. Do you need to work? Yes, you need to work. Those things are not wrong. But the moment that our God is serving our work, his word is serving our agenda for where we want to live or what we want to do or how we want to grow a ministry, we become perverted. We reverse the order. 
we've turned God's world, or tried to, upside down. But the good news of God's word is we cannot turn upside down what God has created, and it prevails. Here in verse 19 through 20, by his command, Jesus sets his disciples free from this twisted economy. He sets them free from covetousness, and he sets them free from materialism, and he sets them free from consumerism. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but, that word but, it is a comparison and a contrast. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And it's with these commands, Jesus makes it very clear. There's a contrast and a comparison that he is making between two competing treasures, two competing values, two competing priorities, and two competing economies. The economy of the earth, where what is esteemed and what is acquired by worldly wisdom and effort is for worldly benefit. Our education, our careers, our cars. And ironically, It is all the world looks to for security. But it cannot keep the world secure. It's a broken cistern, right? We go after it, we go after it, we go after it. It brings temporary relief. And then afterwards, we discover that we're actually more enslaved and more anxious than when we were in the beginning. And this is in opposition to a heavenly economy that's built on the righteousness of God. What God esteems is right, and what God esteems is valuable. What is established and acquired by heavenly wisdom and heavenly effort. What is received by grace through faith. Now you all know this and you've all lived this. It's the Charlie Brown syndrome, right? You work hard, you do your homework. You graduate, you make it to high school. You work hard, you do your homework, you get into a good college. Does your life get any easier, less anxious? You work hard in college, you do your homework, you graduated, you get a job. Good times, I can buy a car. I can live on my own. Good for a season. Hey, you might even get a promotion, and then what happens? Your life's so much more peaceful. So much more enriched. So much more wonderful. What Jesus, the point that he's making here, he's simply summarizing all the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Proverbs 27, 24a, for riches do not last forever. Ecclesiastes 5:10, he who loves money will not be satisfied. This also is what? Vanity. Do the treasures of this world have some temporary value and benefit? Yes, they do. Jesus is not saying here that they have no value. Scripture says, yes, they do have temporary value. Do the earthly treasures bring temporary advantage and applause and pleasure? Scripture says, yes, they do. But are they corrupted and are they corruptible by sin? 
do they last? And in the ancient Near East, they were destroyed and taken by moth, rust, and thieves. In our crypto world, it's taken by the click of a button. And brothers and sisters, obviously God's word testifies to this, but you know this from human experience. Earthly treasures and success, the more we have of them, do they bring lasting peace and security? Do they change us? And do they change our children and our relationships for the better? We know, we see it, we read it on our phones. The more we have of earthly treasures, the increase of our anxiety and the increase of our isolation from God and from one another. Just look at the celebrity lifestyles that we covet. Are they able to go to the grocery store? Are they able to spend time with their friends? Are they able to go to church without being mobbed, all of the different things that you look, that we aspire to, that we want to taste, that we live vicariously through. And the more you have of it, the more separated you become from the Lord frequently and from one another. They're like video game scores in fantasy football. Earthly treasures are great for bragging rights. But a life devoted to these things is vanity. God did not create us for earthly treasures, brothers and sisters. And he did not send his son to die for earthly treasures. He sent his son to die to save us and restore us and to transform us into his image. Now, Jesus is not coming here and saying, you don't work. He's not saying, you don't pay for food. He's saying, what are you devoting your life to and what is your work devoted to? And his command here is a very hard cease and desist from living for earthly values and earthly priorities and earthly treasures. It's not saying don't work. He's saying, what are you working for? What are you accumulating? What is the end? Where is your heart directed? And he's saying, do not be doing this, devoting and wasting your life for the accumulation of earthly treasures. It is folly, it is a waste of time, it is poor stewardship, and it is contrary to a child of God, a disciple. What does Jesus command and demand instead? But lay up for yourselves, ongoing, the direction, the devotion of your life, treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is to be a disciple's priority, his devotion, his stewardship. Sharing his heavenly father's values and priorities and what is of greatest value to God, his son, Jesus Christ. Holy, incorruptible. It brings lasting peace and security. It draws us closer to God. It draws us closer to God's people. The treasure of heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his life. And it is a treasure that gives life rather than taking life or exploiting life. 
brothers and sisters, how much of our time and worry is consumed by earthly treasures. It's worth noting, Jesus is not presenting a principle, brothers and sisters. He's giving a command. And it is a call to put off one way of life and one set of values and priorities and put on another. What is that called in God's word? It's called repentance. This is what it means to follow Jesus, brothers and sisters. As we follow him, increasingly we need to let go of certain priorities and values if we're going to continue to follow where Jesus is leading us. And why does Jesus command us to let go of these values and priorities? Is it because Jesus wants you to put more money in the offering plate? Is it because Jesus needs your money? Is it because Jesus needs a bigger house or a better suit? It's because he loves you. And what's at stake is your heart and your soul and the heart and soul of your spouses and your children and your family. The stakes are high, as is his love. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Christ demands heavenly hearts. Christ demands heavenly hearts. In verse 21, Jesus explains why he is giving this command to repent about our priorities and our pursuits. For, that's an explanatory word, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is simply a summary of the Ten Commandments and God's word. In the Ten Commandments, what's the protection against committing adultery? What's the protection against covetousness? What's the protection against bearing false witness? What's the protection against dishonoring your parents, those last series of horizontal commands, all of those things. It's the first four commands. It's being devoted to God. When you worship God alone and you have no other gods, you're not going to cheat in your wife. You're not going to steal your, steal your neighbor's cow. You're not going to dishonor your parents. Because what matters most to you is a pure heart that loves and honors God for who he is, the God who created us and saved him for himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is God's desire for his children. This is his concern and his warning as he's protecting them about the things in this world. He knows our hearts are defiled and deceived and ensnared by sin and idols. And the moment we take our eyes off him, our eyes begin to gaze on other things. And corrupted treasure corrupts and captures hearts, brothers and sisters. It's as simple as that. But heavenly treasure, brothers and sisters, redeems, it transforms, and it frees hearts. And that is God's desire for you. You know this firsthand. We follow what we invest in. Our sports teams, our entertainment, our stocks, our children's schools and education. We follow what we invest in. D.A. Carson writes, he says, we tend to move 
toward the object on which we fix our gaze. Our whole lives drift relentlessly toward the spot where our treasures are stored because our hearts will take us there. You're moving. We're all moving. And we're moving in the direction of what we are looking at. And what we are looking at reveals what captures our heart, what rules our heart, what's our priority. I mean, how often, how many of you, when you're walking down the street, do you stop and look at the trash on the ground? Oh, here's a, a Burger King wrapper. Let me stop here and look at that for a while. Woo! Honey, you go on. I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes looking at the Burger King wrapper. We don't do that because it's of no value to us. We look at, we stare, we come after what has value to us. And we have to see that we have broken, defiled hearts that have a propensity towards trash. We eat the junk food of the world all day. But we have a heavenly father and a savior who loves us and says, look, look at me, I'm going to give you a full meal and that includes dessert, but it's going to come in its time and its way. Will you trust me? Christ demands, out of love for us, hearts that are devoted to and invested in his kingdom and in his righteousness by faith in him. And this, brothers and sisters, necessarily requires that we let go of earthly values and earthly priorities and earthly treasures. Can they serve us? Yes, they can. Are they a priority that we sacrifice for? Absolutely not. As he points out, can you serve two masters? You cannot. And this, brothers and sisters, is the stewardship of the cross. That what is of value in Christ's kingdom is worthless in the world. And what is valuable in the world is worthless in Christ's kingdom. And what grows us in Christ, brothers and sisters, will crucify the world in us. And what grows us in the world, brothers and sisters... And in the world's esteem, we'll crucify Christ in us. This, brothers and sisters, is the economy of the world. So what is your heart devoted to? What does your time and your worry say about what rules your hearts, what you need to let go of, and what you begin, you need to begin looking to Christ? The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing who. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, scubalon, dog poo, in order that I may gain Christ. Now, let's be practical, not pragmatic. Let's be practical. Okay, can I have my final slide? JC, I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't limit myself to three application points. But I'll get there. Someday I'll be like you. You did well Wednesday night. Okay, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord specifically talks about treasure and reward. And so he shows very specifically how we invest in his kingdom. 
And when you walk through Matthew 5 through 7, you see what Jesus does is he gives you the treasure up front. And what he's commanding you and calling you to do is how are you using the treasure I have given you? It's not the other way around. You bust your chops and maybe I'll give you some at the end. That's the world. And it is all the life of Christ, brothers and sisters. Now, later we will get to the portion of how we do this in the church and in the epistles. But we need to start with the heart where Jesus starts. Because if we don't do this and follow him in this way, we're just building on sand and fallen hearts. Kingdom treasure, where does it begin? Jesus in Matthew 13 says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's buried in the field where you sell all your possessions to buy that field so that you can have it. Christ's presence and his rule in your life as king, that's a treasure. You can follow anybody you want, but can you have the rule and the presence of a king in your life who loves you and has given his life for you? That's treasure, brothers and sisters. So what are you going to do with it? Well, as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, will we hear him? Will we listen to him as king? Will we obey him and say his wisdom is valuable to me? And will we obey him to say, look, his word, his rule, his presence in my life. I'm not going to sneeze at that. It's a treasure. And as we hear and as we trust and as we obey and our lives begin to break in certain areas and he rebuilds them, what we see is his kingdom is growing in our lives, our marriages, our families, our relationship, our worship. His righteousness. Is it valuable to you? Well, we see how do we invest it when he has given his righteousness to us. We follow him. We abide in him by faith. John 15. Christ's love and mercy. What's that worth to you? How do we invest that when he's given us his love and mercy? We give his love and mercy to others. Just like he gave it to us. Christ's peace. I was encouraged to listen to the testimonies of Tyler and Evan last week in the harvest and hospitality and here, not perfect, but God working in their lives and this issue of anxiety and peace and what God has done, bringing them through hard circumstances and situations, but the place that he brought them, a place of rest. In many ways, their testimonies is simply an echo of St. Augustine. We're restless until we find our rest in him. God's peace that comes because of the blood of the cross where Christ has reconciled us to God and reconciled us with his people and set us free from guilt. Well, what do we do with that, brothers and sisters? We give peace. And that peace is not peacemaker, let me just resolve conflicts. It's giving people the gospel. It's calling them to repent and come to the cross and be made right with God so they can be forgiven of their sins and set free of their guilt and so they can find their rest with the Lord and then find their rest with those with whom they've had conflict. Christ's cross. What is that worth to you? Kingdom investment standing with Christ, and you will be persecuted at some point in time for that. 
And that is a privilege that the Lord will reward you for. Count it all joy. Rejoice. Your treasure in heaven is growing. Christ's grace is unmerited favor. Well, how do we invest? We are to be people who are actively giving and forgiving the needy, both spiritual and physical. Right? He's given us grace. He's blessed us. He's forgiven us. We are to be people who are actively and intentionally giving and forgiving the needy. The gift of Christ's spirit. Kingdom investment. Have you invested time in prayer? Coming together by the power of the spirit, hearing God's word and spending time with him. Christ's comfort. Have you been comforted by Christ? Have you been set free from your sins? Have you been forgiven? Are you able to put your head on your pillow and say, I'm a wretched sinner, but Christ's death on the cross is sufficient. I've been forgiven past, present, and future. What am I going to do with this? And we see one of the rewards that God lists is this kingdom fasting. The investment, I'm going to be sad and sorrowful and I'm going to grieve over what God grieves over. Sins of my loved ones, sins of this world, those who are dying and going to hell, and the Lord is going to comfort me. And what Jesus promises when you get to Matthew 19, 29, he says that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and they will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And what he points out is that the blessing and the treasures begin now. And they will grow. And when the new heaven and new earth comes, there is going to be both spiritual and physical blessing. Yes, there will be property. Yes, there will be crowns. Yes, there will be responsibilities. They will be both physical and spiritual. But the blessing that he gives, beginning in the local church, begins here and now. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing? with the treasure God has given you in his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close on prayer. Lord Jesus, what you have given us, this world cannot buy and this world cannot give. Thank you for richly blessing us with your life. May we in turn Invest our time, our priorities, and efforts in using everything that this world has and that you've given us, including our work, our places of employment. May we use it all, O Lord, to invest in your kingdom, to give to others the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that we have received from you. In your name we pray. Amen.